Just to be perfectly clear, this does not include burial at sea. I didn't have that and I didn't touch it. It wasn't requested, so uh, moving forward. I just wanted to make that very clear right off the bat. Uh, so, I've talked for years about how I'm not really a fan of the Bioshock series. Not really. Like, I can recognize the quality of the games, but I can't really get into them or enjoy them myself. Infinite's a good example of that. This is a very well done game. Very well polished. Uh, lots of excellent voice acting, animation. It, it's basically what the Shock series in general, you know, System Shock 2 or Bioshock or whatever, would be if made in a more modern era with more polished time, effort, money, funding, etc. So it's a really good game. It's just not my thing. There's a reason I came up with that phrase, coffee. I do want to share uh, the build I was using, which is basically max out salt first thing. Just focus on that. And possession and murder of crows. It's a little bit of the devil's thing. Just her filler. And that was pretty much how I played through the entire game. Didn't have any issues, but then again, I was playing uneasy, so I'll, you know, that's on me. I do want to say one thing, though. Obviously, as, I don't, as weird as this may sound, I don't have much to say about the overall gameplay, because it's a shock game. Like it's, it's got good level design. It's got good flow and movement. Um, actually, let me pause for a second. The one thing this game does much better than the previous shock games is the movement. There is a wonderful fluidity to moving around, and I think a lot of that's due to the aspect of things. Professional reviewer. And I love the idea of just kind of zooming around. It's kind of like something Metroid Prime 3 attempted and failed at. And later on, we would see a further examination of this very same concept with Spider-Man on the PS4. But either way, it still works very well, and it allows... Because of the run speed, because of the, the nature and, again, flow of the level design, except when the game wants you to pause, it never feels like it's really pausing. I'm saying that wrong. There's no jerkiness to the pace of the gameplay. There's no point at which I was just like, Ugh. Instead, it all flows very seamlessly and fluidly. Back, I keep using the word fluid. Back and forth between high tension and low tension areas. I also want to say that the, the game's extended status as a lengthy escort quest works very well for the same reason that other games have managed this. Uh, God of War 4 comes to mind immediately. The person you're escorting is actually really, really useful in combat as well as out of combat. And there's a semi-regular dialogue going as you're going through it. In fact, that's one of the things I noticed much later. When was that? Uh, ah, way after uh, when the plot finally kind of gets into the big moment when you go rescue her. And all of a the sudden there's just no dialogue. Because you have no one to talk to all of a sudden. And there's no NPCs roaming around, so most of what you get is just the audio blurbs like a typical shop game, but the, the, the variance, the chonk shift in gear for that section uh, is, is very noticeable, and I don't know, I think it, fe uh, it felt like a very good breather section from a gameplay perspective as well. I also want to say the very idea of using the tears as a gameplay mechanic is, is brilliant and really horrifying if you think about that. I heard someone, uh, I didn't actually find a reference to this, but I heard that someone actually sat down and and figured out, okay, so how many different realities do we see throughout the course of the game, given the, the various hoppings, both in gameplay and well as story? It was quite a large number uh, by memory, but again, I couldn't find it, so I'm an idiot. <clears throat> I also have to say, there's several large sections. This is just the last thing I'll say about gameplay, and then I'll move on to the story. There's several large sections where 
you're like, and the camera's like, there's a lot of good visual and audio direction to make it feel like you are roughly, brusquely being dragged to your new destination, which is good because it helps disguise the fact that those are load triggers. Nice little stuff all around. So, story. The first thing I want to talk about, I'm going to kind of go through the game semi-linearly. I mean, it's a linear game, what do you want from me? But what I mean by that is Columbia serves as a nice inverse to Rapture. Ignoring the obvious comparison of underwater to in the sky, there's also the fact that Columbia is filled with people and lively and happy, and there's people going around, and there's a fair, there's a parade going on. I gotta say, when I first saw this, because I saw this game long before I played it, thanks to speedrunning, um, when I first saw this, my first reaction was, I mean, there's no NPCs in shock games, not really. I mean, seriously, think about that for a moment. The overall approach and format of a shock game is you're alone, you have audio logs, and occasionally you'll have one, two, maybe three other people to talk to at best, either like on the comm or like through left messages or whatever. This game went full out by actually having a full fleshed out like background, a world, and it also, this is probably the most important way uh, it's inverse to Columbia or excuse me, it's like Columbia is inverse to Rapture. Rapture, we get there when all hell has already broken out, when, and it's already gone to hell, right? And this is also a typical pattern for the Shock series. Again, to go back to System Shock 2, when you wake up, things have become bad. And granted, the, the wave of bad is like right ahead of you, but that also means at all points in time, you are right behind the wave, so you only ever arrive at a place whence the bad stuff has already happened, right? Here, we get here and we have several, I think it was like half an hour of solid gameplay, and I was admittedly in a rush, but half an hour of just, okay, you take it in the sights. And the funny thing is it's a slow boil, but it's not boring. I, I've always been in a fan of a of slow build-up kind of a gameplay design and story design, so I was with it in general, but at no point in time did I think, oh, come on, let's get on with it. Instead, I was just like, oh, I wonder what this is. I wonder what this is. And, of course, possession, one of my main things I ended up using long-term, is like the first friggin' thing we get, so that makes sense. So we're walking around, and there's one thing I wrote down here that I have to actually mention. They have cigarettes specially for children. Just that by itself is almost all I need to say about Columbia. But no, the the slow build, the slow establishing, it, it has a nice uh, feel to it, of course, but my favorite part is the whole thing is a very classic approach to horror. It's when you have something that is bright and happy and peaceful, you know, something that is to put someone at ease, and then you change one little variable, and you don't change the rest. Nothing else changes. And as a consequence of this one variable being altered, now everything is horrifying. In other words, uh, different context leads, leads to the exact same thing being presented in the exact same way suddenly being terrifying, right? This is what they do here because it's like, hey, you won the raffle, congratulations. You're our lucky winner. You get to attack a mixed racial couple. And, of course, the point of that is obvious, both to the player and to the character. It's, it's the, I'm sorry, what moment. 
I didn't throw the ball. Of course I didn't. In fact, to my knowledge, most people don't. But that's okay, because your choices don't matter in this game. With the exception of one. Now, that's actually one of the biggest themes of the game as a whole, and one of the reasons I don't like it. No matter what you do, it doesn't matter. I don't just mean, obviously, in gameplay, although they do hammer that a lot. They just constantly hit that point, that no matter what you choose, it doesn't change anything. There are many, many fake choices throughout the course of the game. It's, it's almost like a Telltale game. and <laughs> I'm sorry, that's mean. But you know what I mean. Uh, probably my favorite actual little thing. So I mentioned, uh, I didn't actually mention, excuse me, there's the twins. The twins show up periodically, of course, since they're arguably the main crux of the story. I find myself wondering if due to their nature they will continue after the end of the game. Because otherwise they wouldn't, because they never were. <laughs> but, uh, <clears throat> regardless of that, they show up constantly, and knowing the story as I did walking into this, it was, it's really funny listening to their dialogue. They are definitely, this is definitely a game that's designed to be played at least twice. There's a lot of Babylon 5 effect going on here. And oh, obviously I'm going to be spoiling the hell out of this because this is a rumination, so this is your official spoiler warning. But I love that little tidbit of how many times he's picked heads, which means they've been running through this loop, or these patterns, eh, about 122 times, I believe, is the number. Something like that. Yeah, that's not horrifying at all. They start to characterize Elizabeth before we even see her, which is good, because they need to... The game spends an inordinate amount of effort in terms of voice direction, in terms of visual presentation, in terms of narrative presentation, in terms of gameplay presentation, in terms of animation, in order to try and make the player sympathize with her as much as possible. I will freely admit that a whole lot of Papa Bear instincts started going off of like, a, stay away from my daughter, you know, kind of a thing, um, throughout a fairly large chunk of the game, especially since, again, the game starts off with her being naive and innocent and happy and bubbly and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course... So so they start to characterize her, and then we actually meet her. She's innocent, she's kind, she's arguably the main character of the game. I find myself wondering if she survives the events of the game, but, because, well, I'll get to that. <laughs> but it also immediately establishes Songbird, who is established as to be just absolutely terrifying. Now, I will admit, I am a little disappointed we never got to actually fight Songbird. I get why. From a narrative and gameplay perspective, the only way we could ever stand up to something like that is if we had something similar backing us up. If we got into a giant mecha suit, or we got like a cannon, or a tank, or something in order to help us fight it. Because that thing is just beyond us. And I can understand that. But... One of the things I find amusing is that one of the first times, the first time we encounter him, one of the first things we find out is that he has a weakness to pressure. Pushes us under the water, looks at us, eye cracks, leaves. Even seeing that the first time when I was watching a speedrun of it, I was just like, huh. Well, now we know how to escape the thing. And of course, from video game logic, that's what I assumed the game was doing, trying to establish that any time the song... I, I assumed the song would be, bird would be like a repeat stutter, would be a recurring enemy we'd encounter multiple times, and we'd have to, like, oh, God, run, run, get to this area, you know, jump in the water to evade kind of a thing. Instead, it was just foreshadowing. Go figure. Anyways, <clears throat> so we have a breather section. Now, this is important because we started off, ah, here's Disneyland, because that, that was my first thought. It reminded me so much of Disneyland. In a bad way, admittedly, but there it is. 
Uh, funnily enough, the section of Disneyland it reminded me of doesn't exist anymore. I forget what it was called. It's tuned down now. Anyways, so it was like downtown USA or something like that. So we go through it and it's like, hey, and then violence and death, blood. And it is it is actually surprisingly gory. Although apparently System Shock 3 is going that same route. So I suppose that's not super surprising. Pity. I always felt the Shock series was more interesting when it was not gory because... Well, the kind of horror that the Shock series tends to present is much more horrifying than a bunch of blood and guts, in my opinion. But, moving along. Okay, we got away, and there's Elizabeth! Okay, we found her, we need to get out of her songbird! Uh, beach! People laughing and singing! Dancing! I love the pacing of this game, I really do. As much as I don't care for the overall, uh, just there is a, some very well-crafted pacing. You could tell that people spent a lot of time on the whiteboards on this one. So we have the breather episode, NPCs are back, and then we end up getting trapped. They actually force out of that perfectly. Annabelle, yeah, I caught that. And it's like, oh, hey, oh, yeah, excuse me, sir, just a second, stab right through the hand. I'm amazed we could use that hand after that. That's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to cut in there. And then we're right back to violence, and we kill a bunch of people, and this time we kill a bunch of people right in front of her. Now, we've been doing that, and we're the player, and we don't care. I like how the game takes a moment to pause and have her react to this and be like, what which is which makes a lot of sense. Most normal people would react pretty badly to seeing that kind of violence in front of them. They'd probably throw up on the spot. Someone as innocent and sheltered as Elizabeth? Or should I say Anna? Whew. Yeah. So, <clears throat> this then leads to what I'm going to go ahead and kind of roughly refer to as Act 2. Uh, this is when we deal with the Civil War. This is probably the weakest overall point of the game, but it makes sense to me because what's happening is they need to establish world-building points and character points. They need to have the two characters break apart, be forced together, slowly grow back together until they trust each other again, and we need to start both of the character arcs that are going to be going for this. And throughout the course of this section and the next one, our character, Booker, actually gets a lot softer. He starts out harsh, rough, whatever, damn, just doing this for the job. By the end of it, he is far more interested in, in being kind and interesting and polite and cares about her and getting her out more than, you know, whatever the job was. She goes through basically the exact opposite route of starting off, ah, and ending up, well, this is how it goes. Now, it's a fairly typical you know, X, X attack, cross slash, whatever, narrative character arc for two characters to go through. What I like is, first of all, there's nothing wrong with a cliche as long as you do it well. But second of all, I like how both of them help each other through it. That's probably the biggest point for me. It's not just the fact that they are both going through something that they can then, you know, try to deal with. It's that they help the other in very small ways constantly to get through the arc the other's going through. By sheer virtue of the fact that they're going through their arcs together, both of them survive their ascent and descent, respectively, and arguably become better people for it. Now, um, with the Civil War section... Uh, I mentioned the Wedge, the, the Founders versus the Vox Populi. I actually don't have a lot to say about that, because <clears throat> narratively speaking, the Civil War section is irrelevant, which is part of the point. No, its real purpose there is to show you a story, and then to show you how the story could be different. 
That's the point. Because this is when the reality terror thing really starts to come into play. And this is when they really start to showcase her powers and the terrors. They become a gameplay mechanic, of course, as I referenced earlier. But they also kind of show the alternate probabilities thing, which is, at its core, the point of Bioshock Infinite. So... <clears throat> we see exactly what happens in one reality where we end up taking up the flag and the cause and saying, yes, I will do whatever it takes. I will do anything possible to make this happen. And died in the process. We also find out, and of course the game hammers this point very heavily, that uh, Fitzroy, yeah, Fitzroy as well as Comstock are both just as bad as each other in their own different ways. As an aside... One of the interesting points about Bioshock, and I believe I mentioned this in my rumination of it, it was many years ago, this point, like five, six years ago at this point. Um, I believe I mentioned this was that it was trying to, some people misinterpreted it as being anti-capitalism or anti-communism or whatever. But the actual point of Bioshock, as has been emphasized many times, including in interviews, was that it was anti-extremism. That any philosophy taken to a logical extreme is awful. And that's kind of what we see here, but at a surface level. This game, in many ways, is built for people who have played Bioshock. And I, I say that firmly. I don't actually know if that's 100% true, but I say that with 99% certainty, because this game plays on the expectations of someone who has played Bioshock. It establishes and develops many things in a pattern uh, that would follow Bioshock's pattern and uses that to deceive the player and to, to kind of twist things on them and to go in a different direction. It still has its Shodan moment, don't mistake me. But the Shodan moment in this game is arguably about 10 seconds before the game ends. Anyways. <clears throat> so, rips, tears, Doom reference. Um, I'm looking at my notes here. We uh, <laughs> After dealing with the Civil War section, after uh, moving forward with that, the bird interrupts again. And this is when we see the beginning of something that's actually hinted at many times. There's an inordinate amount of foreshadowing in this game. But something that's hinted at many times. Time distortions, in addition to uh, dimensional distortions. So we have temporal as well as dimensional. So that's fun. And he gets shoved forward into a bad future. And we have a really dark section where we go and find out exactly what happened to Elizabeth. Now, this is a very carefully crafted section. They do every, they have already tried to make Elizabeth someone that you care about as the player, the actual person sitting at the computer or TV or whatever. This is on consoles, right? I think it is. Uh, but this, this section is designed to really, really make sure that you care about her. All of it showcases in a very deeply personal way the kind of torture and brainwashing and nightmares that she suffered through for years. Until finally she accepted her role, and then at the end, towards the twilight of her life, pulled us forward so that we could behold the future that Comstock has wrought. The, the, the great and advanced technology of the alternate time-displaced dimensional alterations of, of Columbia devastating the world below. And then she gives us a note and sends us back. She doesn't send us all the way back, unfortunately. We never, if I'm not mistaken, we never find out exactly how long there's a gap between when we're shoved out and when we shoved back. But at least we get back in time to save Elizabeth. By which point in time, I imagine most players are willing to sh literally rip their TVs in half it will, if it will save Elizabeth. Because, oh my god, that we literally walk in on her being actively tortured. 
Yeah. So the plot, of course, at this point is firmly... The Columbia is, is at this point effectively revealed to be nothing more than a charade. This is all about the dimensional hopping thing, right? Because that's the main thrust of the plot, right? I mean, it has to be. What else could it possibly be? Well, <clears throat> we have the big rescue. It's a great section. And I'm looking at my notes here. I just want to make sure I don't skip over anything because the, the, the section here is very powerful. Um, we go after Comstock next. I was right. I was right. We go after Comstock next. Now... One of the interesting things about Comstock, this is never stated outright, but the game makes it very clear, especially in the various audio dialogues and things that happen throughout the course of the game, is that Comstock totally misunderstood what a baptism actually means. Now, I don't want to get into theology or anything here, but the thematic point of a baptism is you are trying to wash away your sins because what you did was wrong and you want to do better, the concept of redemption. Okay? I mean, it's 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 the most base level, right? But Comstock took the wrong lesson from that. I am now redeemed, therefore everything I did was right. The baptism has now altered me so that I am now good, which means all that I have done is good. And through this lens, everything he does suddenly makes sense. If you presume that twisted, distorted, warped, messed up, very realistic, view on reality, then all of a sudden you see why Comstock does all of the things he does. Good God. This, of course, leads to Comstock reaching out to Miss... Oh, God, what was her name? I think I wrote down a, a thing somewhere in my notes about how to pronounce it. But I have no idea where I wrote that down. Uh... Lucid, Lucid. Oh my god, I don't actually know her name. The woman in orange. Oh, here we go, Lutes. Lutesses. Okay, so I, I was right, I was right. Okay, so Lutes, he reaches out to the Lutes woman and says, Hey, uh, so I'm going to go ahead and fund you this if you go ahead and make this work and blah, 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 blah. And that leads into everything kind of starting. Now, it's important to break this down because for something like this, which is both temporal and dimensional crossing, we need to establish an, a start point. It is worth noting that this game very firmly is not what I usually refer to as type 1 time travel. This is actually an excellent example of type 3 time travel, um, multiple dimensions. But... Well, that's actually a lie, and I shouldn't actually say that. What I mean by that is, this is actually an example of a weird crossover of Type 3 and Type 2. Because what is posited by the game is the possibility of altering time, but in a way that doesn't just craft another timeline. See, in a true Type 3 scenario, if we were to, for example, never be born, just to name something at random, then... Comstock would not be retroactively re removed from all of the time timelines. Instead, there'd just be a new timeline in which that is now made true. Thus, we see kind of a blender of Type 2 and Type 3. I'm sorry, I just realized I'm using my terminology. Type 3 is multiple uh, timelines. Type 2 is malleable timeline. Very brief summary. So, we kill Comstock. He saw it coming. Of course he did. And, uh... We have this wonderful section with the songbird, Cage, by the way. I uh, that, That's a nice little touch, C-A-G-E. We 
there's this wonderful bit where we actually do manage to destroy the tower and the siphon is removed from her. I like the idea that her power had become so vast they needed an entire facility to keep her under tabs. That's just impressive. And then she warps us down into Rapture. Heh. <laughs> now, this is kind of messed. Obviously, you know, this is how Songbird finally dies, as it should. But, um... This this is very messed up, because this is basically positing the very simple idea that this is, for lack of a better way to put it, that this exists within the same setting as Bioshock. Bioshock is simply another branch, another possibility, which it's possible by the end of this game may have never happened, depending on how you interpret that. I'm still building up to that point. So we go through Rapture, and we see the lighthouse, the man, and the city. And I, I want to say something really quick, if I might, because... In my opinion, this goes into a theory that I actually have in real life. Uh, it, I don't have a term for it. It's just a theory of patterns. Uh, the concept is that if you are to look at all of life as a massive series of ludicrously complicated mathematical equations, there's always constants. There's always patterns to, to the way things happen. Now, there's a lot of evidence that this is true, but it's not like concrete evidence, because how do you... How do you make evidence about the nature of reality, right? It's actually not possible to do such a thing. So, instead, all we can do is speculate. But in such speculations, the idea is that there's constants that are then used as the base point of other perceptions. And in this case, the way this is being presented is the lighthouse, the man, and the city is one of those constants. Now, I know I'm, I'm saying this in a weird way. I don't mean constant as if there's the number three, which is how it actually would be presented. I mean the, the capacity for something to be like a divided by would be a slightly better way to put this, or the nature of pi, for example. Um, but I'm getting way off track in this into a, the surreal land, and I don't want to. It's part of what I don't like about this game, is it tends to jump a little bit too hard into surreal land. Which is funny, because that brings us to the ending. See, this is not a story about multiple dimensions or high science fiction or, you know, extremes being wrong or anything. You know what this is the story of? The man and his daughter. At its core, Bioshock Infinite is an extremely personal story. This is one of the reasons why we are always seeing things through a lens. And I don't just mean the first-person shooter thing, although, of course, that is a naturally meta way to establish that. You'll notice the one and only time we leave the first-person perspective is after we die. <laughs> but this is a story that we... This, actually, to be slightly more accurate, this is dozens of stories, or at least a dozen stories, that we slide in and out of, thanks both to the fact that we're moving through you know, the, the events of the game, and moving through dimensions and times as we go, where we're only seeing a little bit of it. We're peeking through, peeking into the window kind of a thing, or peeking through the keyhole. You know, it's, oh, what's in that story? And you see a little bit, and, you know, you see a person, and another person, and then a thing, and that, that gives you an idea of what's going on. But for the most part, this is all about us and our daughter, and how much that changes everything for both of us. Now, the ending... I'm going to be really boring and think of this logically and literally. The ending deter is, is changed based on exactly when it happens in Booker's life. At what point in time did he go into that baptism? Because by going back to that baptism and cessating effectively, that will ensure, type 2 time travel, that there is no possibility of a Comstock, which was the first timeline. The original timeline is when, when Comstock did that. In so doing, he then 
you know, just became an idiot and insane, as I mentioned with regards to his misunderstanding of baptism. He uh, contracted the Lutess, not the Lutesses, because there's only one at the moment. She ended up using her technology and, and power in order to do things with quantum mechanics, which are just, it's just the quantum of the, the game. It's just Voyager all over again. And in so doing, opened up tears into other dimensions, at which point the boundary started to break down a bit. At this point, he decided to go and reach out to his daughter from before he was capable of doing this. I'm skipping over some specific details, but the point being, this sequence of events is important because then he reaches back into an ex another existing dimension, the one we are actually playing from for the most of the game. And that ends up leading to Anna, Elizabeth, losing her pinky. That's also relevant because that's the core focus of all of her powers. She, she, admittedly the game kind of glosses over this, but the general gist of the idea is that because she herself was directly, physically, permanently altered in a way that she was cross-dimensional, she started having access to cross-dimensioning. And thus, over time, slowly became more and more capable and cognizant of opening up tears and moving through them and altering things and blah, 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 blah. And just generally learning control over that. Now, all of this is relevant because the moment at that baptism matters. If that was before... I'm trying to think how to phrase this properly. If that was before we had a daughter, let's put it that way, then what that means is all of the events of the game never happened. All of them. Because then what happens is rather than, you know, us ever getting in debt and having to sell off our daughter, our daughter simply left without us. If this is before our daughter was born, then Elizabeth probably ceases to exist because she was never born at the source point. However, as I mentioned earlier, it's possible the Lutesses were able to survive this incident regardless, purely because of the fact that they themselves are already cross-dimensional thanks to their own thing, which I'm not even a cover right now. Basically, Comstock was like, hey, I, I got a good idea. I'm going to kill the brilliant scientist who put me in power because I'm a genius. And that didn't go well and instead made them um, metaphysical, I think is the simplest way to put that. So it's possible, thanks to that pinky and to her establishment and development with the, with the nature of what she now wasn't, it's possible that Elizabeth would retain her existence even afterwards. Now, the reason that's kind of messy is because that means all the Elizabeths maintain themselves afterwards, which kind of goes contrary to the overall approach of the game. Now, all of this is all in the realm of theoretical because we don't know the exact moment of the baptism, but I'm going to go and just give my theory on the matter because my theory on the matter is actually really, really simple. By reverting to zero, by the way, you notice the main character is willing to lay down his life to save his daughter. Nice touch. By reverting back into zero, forgive me for quoting Metal Gear Solid 4 here for a moment, I believe that what happened is we do, basically this massive chain of events that started from that original baptism collapses entirely. All of these events of the game and its backstory and all of the different dimensions that are crossed by the game and the backstory never happened. They're all cessated. As in, they never were. In contrast to this, what then happens is, back in the original timeline, the one that actually started this particular barrage, we, we, that is to say Booker, is dead. 
because he died in that water. And as a consequence, our daughter, Elizabeth, just grows up and has a normal life. And basically everything is wiped clean. Now, I don't just say that because I think I kind of prefer that particular ending, but I also say that because that kind of follows the thematic significance of baptism. She now gets to lead a new life because we have washed away our sins. Now, yes, I know about the stinger, and I'm not even going to talk about the stinger because I've got nothing to say about the stinger. It's a stinger. <laughs> what do you want from me? <sighs> I think that's it. I feel that's short. It's actually kind of a short game. I was a little surprised going back through it. I was expecting it to take several days to go through, like so many of the games I do. Instead, I just managed to plow through this just today. So, thank you, everyone, for listening to me. I hope you've enjoyed. And I look forward to the comment section telling me how incredibly wrong I am on this one. I'll see you next time, guys.